We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a with young players is not to get ahead of yourself, to give them room and time to grow, and not let the hype outweigh the reality. With that having been said, let's hope they're at least preparing to replace Henri's statue with Martinelli's. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. You can call him Pele. You can call him Ronaldo Eli or Martinaldo or... Thierry Martinelli, whatever you want to. The fact is, he's the greatest player in the history of the club, and and I'm thrilled that we've got him. Uh, And quite a few greatest players in the history of the club potentially coming through the academy. Something that we will talk about on this podcast with Tim. You can find him on Twitter, at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And allowed out of his stats cage, for reasons that remain unclear to me, you have uh, Scott. You can find him on Twitter, O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Yeah! Man, I missed that. Uh, so, real quick, housekeeping. Um, oh, our friends, our friends, uh, the lingerie people, the enclosed, they're coming back, so you'll be hearing from them this winter. We missed it. Nothing says cold weather like a lacy thong or something like that, so looking forward to that. But you know what's also kind of lacy and sexy? Some of the writing that's been going on at The Athletic, and you should definitely sign up there. There's a really, really good article, actually, that was just posted about um, – how players are sort of warmed down after a match and what they go through to stay fit. Uh, Really interesting. Thought that was cool. Not sure if anybody caught that, but uh, one that I tweeted out on my timeline if you want to check it out. And you can go to it at theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision and get it half off and a month free and help us. We've got some really good guests for the international break. Can't wait for that. So uh, we'll get to the match. Oh, by the way, over on Patreon, we did our Manchester United second half rewatch. We are going to probably do a match spotlight uh, on Martinelli, maybe, because he just about deserves it. 
And uh, we get a couple other cool ideas queued up there. So anyway, love you all. So happy to have you here. And we can dive in. And Tim, I have to say, I'm enjoying the cup football more than the league football at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all the things about it. The the young players coming through and exciting us. The attacking front-footed football, uh, aided, no doubt, by the not particularly fantastic opposition, it must be said. <laughs> um, the goals, the shots, the whole the whole thing, it's, it's all looking really nice. Um, I think we should just start with Martinelli, though. Uh, seeing as how you are an adopted Brazilian, he is a player that we spoke about when we signed him. You thought maybe it was a little too soon to expect much from him, and I'm curious to get your take on uh, on how you evaluate the player now and how impressed you are by him versus maybe your expectations when he came in. Yeah, really impressed, really impressed. And I, th- I think even um, beside the goals, because, uh, you know, obviously if you scored like four goals in two games, that's going to grab attention. But I really, really very honestly think even if he hadn't scored those goals, that he'd get a lot of deserved commendation for his performances. And he's got this um, he's got this really nice kind of way of pressing as well from the front where he kind of lulls you into a full, full sense of security because he doesn't go up and at him straight away. He kind of he, he lays back and he lets he just lets the defender relax and then he goes for him. Um, and it's kind of a technique I think Sanchez had that I think Luis Suarez has as well. Um, you know, maybe it's a South American thing. I don't know. But just that kind of lying in wait. And then just as the defender controls the ball and starts looking up and thinks they're comfortable, he goes after them. Um, and, and, you know, his work rate off the ball has been really good. I think we spoke after the kind of Nottingham Forest pod about some of the positions he takes up. And, you know, the fact that he's played all across the front line in his youth. And I think I think Clive made the, you know, the the, the fairly interesting comparison to Son, and uh, and and I think there is a bit of that. Like he, like I said last time, he doesn't just stand on the penalty spot. He does take up those half spaces very well. Um, and yeah, I, I've been I've been super impressed with the way he's played, and and perhaps you know that's just the value of him playing a bit of you know playing men's football playing kind of lower league brazilian football rather than you know coming to europe when he was 15 which he had the opportunity to do and playing on manicured pitches in the academy and playing academy football because i think sometimes when you come through the academy system and you you start playing first team football there's a fair bit of probably deprogramming that needs to go on um to get people attuned to it and and i don't think he's really had to do that he's come from um, you know, the Brazilian fourth division. And it's interesting because uh, t- towards the end of Wenger's reign, you know, after what Leicester did, Wenger and Gazidis started talking about how actually it's sometimes better to take players from the lower leagues because they already have that kind of that hunger. They haven't, you know, they have kind of didn't have privilege, as it were, in a footballing sense. Um, they've played on bad pitches and they've had to earn it and they've had to kind of run after lost causes etc etc so um i i think i think there's there's some really interesting qualities there and and i i you know i don't really think he's ever played as a center forward um i may be wrong mm. about that but i really don't think it's a position he's played very often but he looks like a natural yeah unai said it's not his best position um that that he is more of a wide player but certainly he he does look like a natural there tim i think one of the things we tend to do whenever players start to come through is we try to find comparable players to them yeah, um, which you know, is natural. We, and, and it is natural. And it may be a weird comparison, but there's there's a little bit of either Aguero. I mean, mm. is that in the sense of like, he's not the most physically imposing, but he he uses his body well. He 
he yeah. has a, a surprising quickness and and an ability to just annoy the shit out of you in and around the box. He gets into good spaces. Yeah. He he elevates at the right times. He's you know, he knows when to make the near post run or when to drop in. You could also say that Obamyang has a little bit of that, although the body type is different. Is is there is that a comparison that fits for you? Do you have another one you like? I- I think so, yeah. And I think it's quite interesting that um, quite a lot of the players we're kind of talking about aren't European. Um, so there definitely is something of the South American forward about him. I think, yeah, there's a bit of Aguero. Gabriel Jesus is very similar. He's not big or physically imposing, but he's good at getting in positions. You know, Sanchez, I think, Roberto Firmino, there's a bit of all of that there. And, you know, Clive compared him to Son as well. Uh, Not South American, but not European either. I don't know if there's anything in that. It could all just be a coincidence. We could unconsciously just be looking for that because he happens to be South American. But he's, um, I guess I'd probably call him like a pockets player. You know, he's he's just good at picking up those spaces wherever Mm. they are. Um, and that's what I mean about him kind of leaning towards the half spaces. He's never in, the, he, he's rarely in like a really central position, even that header he scores, you know, he's, he doesn't go and run from the penalty spot for that. He is already in that half space, even when he's anticipating a cross. that, that seems to me to be where he likes to linger. Um, and, and that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. The, the neat thing about it is he seems really comfortable off the ball, operating in space in the center of the box, but he, he definitely has a trick on the ball and an ability to beat a man with the ball at his feet. So, you know, if he has to play out wide, that would be just as comfortable for him. You know, we see with Aubameyang, maybe the challenge is he's not quite so good with the ball. I mean, it's not that he's bad with it. It's just not where he's elite. Uh, whereas Martinelli, you, you can see him maybe having a, a little bit more comfort with the ball at his feet. Scott, I, I'd love to just sort of pick some of the the statistical details out of the game from him and and maybe generally I mean when you look at the game he had statistically I, I think it's just as impressive as as the sort of subjective viewpoint of the game do you have any statistics that kind of emphasize the the quality he brought to this to this fixture yeah I mean I thought this was probably one of the best all-around performances we've seen from an arsenal forward this season um you know he had great shot volume created for teammates he had um, almost 1.6 XG, or you know, he did have 1.6 XG all by himself, which is um, quite phenomenal. Um, it was actually funny; he actually um, missed a lot of the the bigger chances and scored the the harder ones. So it, it was very well that he could have done, you know, at least three goals, four goals wouldn't have been out of the question uh, for the chances that he was able to get. Uh, he had four key passes, including two big chances. That one that he got to the byline and just chipped it up that um, Ceballos scored. That was a, a great piece of skill right there because that ball was floated perfectly, you know, perfectly weighted and, you know, got over everybody just for Ceballos to score. Um, yeah, and he, he did seem to be active on defense, you know, three tackles, uh, you know, was only dispossessed one time, draw fouls. So, I mean, I think it was overall um, basically everything you'd expect for in an all-around performance statistically. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of those rare games where you got to see him be a phenomenal striker in the game and also provide some phenomenal uh, wing play in the game. Before we turn it over to our surprise guest, um, do you want to just really quickly hit us with some of the general stats from the game, the XG overall, the shots? I mean, I'm guessing, and again, we'll we'll run this through the Crapaton 4000 in a bit, but uh, I'm guessing statistically overall, this winds up looking like one of our best performances of the season as a team. Yeah, so I mean, the overall, this one is uh, 4.2 to 0.6, so it almost perfectly matches up with the uh, 4-0 scoreline. Um, but also, it, it is kind of interesting. So Arsenal will go out to a 3-0 lead 
um, on less than one XG and then spend the rest of the game missing big chances just to, to even things up. Um, but overall, this was definitely one of the, the better performances. Um, the thing that I actually probably, you know, really liked the most was that even after, um, you know, going up three goals to nothing, uh, Arsenal still continued to hold on to the ball. They were always in control. They didn't seem to go into their passive thing that we've seen so often this season and continued to look for more goals and never really gave, um, you know, Standard Liège the, the chance to get back into this one. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we got a legal letter from uh, Poznan in My Pants Industries saying that if we uh, invoke the Crapaton 4000 without having him on the pod, we would face a lawsuit. So we've invited him on the pod. Paul's on Twitter at Poznan in My Pants. Hello, Paz. Uh, run it through the Crapaton 4000 for us. Where does this rate? It was a 6.1 factoring in the opposition, the players on the pitch, and the competition. So mm, Okay. I do want to have one objection here. We, we keep saying that, you know, this, the, the team level, but I mean, if you actually look at the, the ELO ratings, they're, they're pretty comparable to, you know, a bottom table Premier League team. And we don't do this against, you know, the bottom table Premier League teams this season. Yeah, I think the pushback from that, and, and we'll come to that because I think that's a debate that we should have. But I think the pushback, if there was going to be one, would be, did they show us more deference than the bottom of the table Premier League teams do in terms of coming at us? And we'll, we'll come on to that. Paul, I, I went with Martinaldo. I think um, as the yeah. the new name of this this bright young superstar, you have a, a comp player for him. Yeah, Bobby Martinelli, I think would be the way I go. Look, he this was a shot monster performance with seven shots, but it was also a performance monster. I mean, he just even if you took away his goals, he had a great game. Even if you took away his goals and the assists, he's just. He's like a Tasmanian devil for the whole 90 minutes. He just runs and runs. I think we all saw that uh, moment where he was like chasing down across their front three. We'd already won the game at this stage. We were probably four up at this point. He's chasing across their their back line as the ball goes around. And the ball gets played down the wing uh, into our final third. And he tracks it all the way into the penalty box in like, I don't know what it it was, but maybe the 80th minute of the game. And the guy just goes and goes. I mean, he's just, he's, he's an absolute phenomenon. And I don't think he's going to have quiet games for us. You know, we'll, we'll talk about other comparisons to youth players, but they can kind of be a bit invisible after having a good game. Uh, Martinelli is not one of those guys who's not going to be visible in the game. He just, the impression he leaves on the pitch is just phenomenal. And I really think he provides, uh, I, I, I really think an interesting comparison is Enkedia, who's over at Leeds and Bielsa. Is, uh, I've watched every me- moment of Enkedia so far. And as everybody knows, I love that guy. I think he's a brilliant talent. But Bielsa isn't convinced that's the guy to put put the personality on the pitch up front in each game, and he's playing this ba- Bamford character. And you don't have that issue with Martinelli. Now, maybe Martinelli will turn out not to quite be a striker, um, where Enketi is obviously a guy who goes into the six-yard box uh, you know, Unai is entitled to his opinion. It's a game of of opinions. This football, I, I think he definitely has what it takes as a striker, but time will tell. And like, if if uh, Martinelli were over at Leeds, he might be the guy who pushes Bamford out of the way because he can do it all. He's 
Eddie can have score two goals in a game or one goal in a game. But outside of that, he's kind of ghosting around. He's subtle. You know, there are different kinds of strikers. Mm. And I hope in a year or two, we'll have the challenge of, of having two prodigious talents and saying, well, which kind of striker do we want? Yeah. I, I mean, look, it's easy to get carried away with these kind of performances. And so we should. And, and I think that's what we're going to do. Uh, Tim, I, I want to shift gears a little bit to another two players on the pitch that I... We'll, we'll get to some of the other young players because I think Joe Willick certainly deserves attention. I think Nelson deserves attention. But I want to talk about Ceballos and Torreira because I think they both look mm. more comfortable. And just by the way, to put things in perspective, we think, oh, Standard were terrible. They didn't come at us. They didn't try to play. You know, can you evaluate the game? Just for a little perspective, Standard played more passes in the first half than we did in the first half at United. They had more shots in the first half than we had in the first half at United. They played more passes in the game than we played in the game against United. So They had many fine crosses well, in the yeah, first look, half. They had no big chances. They had 13 shots, which actually isn't awful. But, I mean, look, they were blown off the pitch. I think all I'm saying is, you know, we really dominated this game. And still, you know, I mean, we had 556 completed passes in this game. We dominated the possession. We dominated the territory. And I think two players that looked really comfortable, admittedly under lower mm. pressure, were Ceballos and Torreira. And so I want to get your thoughts on the way they were used in this game as it contrasts with the way they've been used in Premier League games and mm. if there's something that can be taken from that in terms of how they should be used going forward. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think what you saw as well, not just controlling the ball better, but we controlled space better. Um, and, and, you know, standard Liège, they weren't parking the bus. This wasn't, I mean, maybe they should have, um, really. They, but they this wasn't a backs to the wall, park the bus type no. performance. Mm-hmm. They, 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 like, as you illustrated, they were coming at us, not, not very well, but, but they were doing it. But Arsenal, you didn't get that sense that we were just wide open all the time because the space was just so much more, um, was just so much more controlled. And so on one hand, I I get slightly annoyed at the moment about the amount of which individuals are being dug out. Um, And I, you know, I get a bit annoyed about this kind of, oh, Luis and Socrates are shit. And they're not. They're just playing in a completely different um, kind of setup that doesn't help them, quite frankly. Um, but having said that, and I don't want to dig him out because I think the manager is exposing him. Isn't it weird how all of our best performances are without Granite Xhaka? And mm. that's not because Granite Xhaka is terrible or awful or an awful person or an awful footballer. It's because, in part, we're asking him to do a job, I think, that he can't really do. We're basing a counter-attacking transition game around him which I, I can't quite work out why we're doing that um, when we have a really kind of in Terrera we have a really like counter-attacking transition type player but it, it just it looked so much more cohesive again a bit like against Burnley who are a much stiffer challenge than Standard Liège were who came at us much better and I think are a better team than Standard Liège but you know you just had that little sense of cohesion again and you just had that sense that there were defined roles in this midfield three so Torreira was doing his stuff in front of the back four and look to be fair Torreira gave the ball away a couple of times and it did make me think "Mm, yeah maybe that's like you know if I'm Unai Emery maybe I'm looking at that and going yeah Xhaka wouldn't have done that um 
He's done but, it a bit this season, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Away. Yeah, yeah, precisely. But, you know, not not all the time. And I, I still think, basically, I think that Xhaka doesn't... So, like, th- there are lots of our midfielders are flawed for that particular position, but I don't think Xhaka solves any of the problems. Like Genduzi, for example, playing deepest, I think works in a lot of ways. You could say defensively, he's not always that switched on and he's quite reactive rather than proactive, but... Um, that's not a problem Granite Jack solves in particular. And so, yeah, I, I just felt the spacing was much better and the roles were just much clearer in that midfield three. It's much cleaner. It's Torreira. I'll do the cleaning in front of the back four and I'll take the, the ball off the centre-half. Ceballos kind of, you know, drifting over to the left-hand side and cutting in. He's the creator. Willock, I'm the one that's going to move my ass off the ball. And, you know, as and when needed, I can carry the ball as well. It was just, it was just a much nicer spread of mm. attributes um and and you know you talk about some of these some of these players you think you know yeah you've earned a shot like um it's really interesting what he's going to do on saturday it's it's a wonderful problem he's got on sunday rather um he's got a pick between two 18 year olds for the left wing spot both of whom totally deserve to start in Saka and martinelli um and it's wonderful that like these young players like what I'm not getting the sense of uh, watching these young players is, you know, in, in recent seasons where we've played them either in the Europa League or the League Cup under Arsene Wenger, and you just, but you still had this sense that there were two Arsenal teams. Um, there was like the Cup team and the first team. And this feels much more fluid. This feels like, you know, these guys will play considerable first team minutes. This isn't Carlos Vela scoring a hat-trick against Wigan and then not playing again until the next round. This is, uh, you could start on Sunday. Um, and and so, you know, if some of these young players have earned more of a chance, then some of them players like Torreira and Ceballos have earned that as well. You know, when you're looking at picking the, you know, picking the team on Sunday, you've got to say, okay, Standard Liège not the strongest opposition, but what has but but you've just got to go on what you've seen and it's like what has been our best functioning midfield this season well that one therefore you've earned another chance like you earn a promotion mm. right if you it's it's like being a manager if you're a really good mid table manager what happens you take a job higher up and you might not be able to do it but you earn the shot is what you do and th- and that's that's kind of what i think's happened here those guys yep they could play against bournemouth on sunday and it might not work and it might be a completely different game. It might be more intense and therefore their effectiveness might be reduced. But basically, I think they've earned the right to fail. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, I, Paul, I know you had a question for Tim just about the change that was made later in the game. Yeah, I don't know if there's any significance in it. But when he brought on Ganduzi, it seemed Torreira was shifted from the DM spot where I was yeah. enjoying. Uh, I was kind of hoping Unai saw this as, well, let's give Torreira a run at DM and see how this pans out for the team. But he brings on Ganduzi and shifts Torreira back to his, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I, uh, I I sit directly opposite the bench, so I can often see what uh, the managers are gesticulating when they make these changes. And yet 100%, he said straight away to Ganduzi, you know, he was like motioning his arms backwards. And as soon as Genduzi came on, he spoke to Torreira. So, yeah, that that is kind of exactly what happened. And he, mm. he put Genduzi in that deeper role. And that's to 
briefly reignite a, a discussion of previous pods. That's why I think he's got Gendouzi earmarked to take that Xhaka role more than I think he's got Torreira earmarked for it. Yeah, I mean, it is one of these things, I think, that you have to look at. And while no one would say that Frankfurt or Forrest or Burnley or Standard Liège are the best competition, a lot of players have looked more comfortable in the roles they've been given we played 4-2-3-1 a lot more. Ceballos needs that partner. I mean, if you look at this game, Torreira and Ceballos completed a lot of passes. You know who their most common passing recipient was? Each other. They they thrive off that. Small space, partner next to him, give it and move it up the pitch by connecting with your midfield partner, and, and they understand those roles. And I think when you look at Torreira completing, like, you know, two passes against United in that more advanced role, um, and you look at how this worked with Willock kind of gliding all over the pitch in that, in that sort of... 10, number 10 role. It just looked a lot more comfortable for everybody. And I think sometimes tactics can take a back seat to just putting players in more natural positions. Um, you know, and, and, and we can go forward and talk about that more, but Scott, I think we have to uh, get to some of the other performances that are really exciting about this. And let's face it, one of the things that maybe makes this whole lineup work is the presence of two excellent fullbacks. Um, by by the way, uh, Scott is our reporter on the side of, of the freeway right now. Uh, so, do you want to? What's the traffic like at, at present? Uh, it, it's going pretty good right now. We're moving. We're moving good. It's you know it's eleven o'clock. So good. You know, good. No, Great. No rush hour or anything. Thanks for that. He's, yeah. in a, he's in a helicopter over London Colony. Yeah. Yeah. Getting getting uh, with with a banner. We won't tell you what the banner says. Uh, so. I mean, I think Bellerin looked maybe a step off the pace. Great to see him back. Loved him standing up for his teammate uh, when the fracas broke out briefly. But, like, I think the bigger performance here was Tierney. Kolasinac has been, I mean, let's say it. He hasn't been very good. It, it is what it is. I don't, I don't think that's a controversial opinion. And Tierney, admittedly with a step down in competition, just looked fantastic. Uh, better crosses, covering the pitch more easily, just effortless running. The, the athleticism that he's renowned for was on display. How impressive was Tierney's performance for you, and how important is the return of one or both of these fullbacks for the way we want to build play? I, I think that was the the biggest thing, is that you, know, you had a fullback on both sides of the pitch that were comfortable on the ball, um, you know, we could see just the, the speed in the way that we built up um, just seemed to be a lot faster. You know, that we would see the, the one touch kind of thing where you'd get the little triangle, you know, we'd pass it a couple times. Maybe we'd go back to go forward, but it didn't ever feel like it was something that was struggled with. It felt a lot more natural that these guys felt comfortable on the ball. It didn't matter if there was a defender there with them. So I thought that just having both, of you know, really highly technical, get on the ball players made a huge difference. Um, tyranny was especially good for me, um, you know, especially after we've gotten so used to, you know, 75, 80% passing from our, you know, our left fullback to getting him. I think he was at like 96% or something like that. It was just a, an absolutely, um, you know, great passing. I thought his crossing was especially um, good. You know, he wasn't, you know, those, um, you know, get down to the byline and do a, a pullback. It was a lot. He, he was a um, crossing from a little bit further out than you'd normally see with Kolasinac. Um, but even then, it was still low, hard crosses that were um, causing problems. Um, overall, I thought he was a, a very good performance, and I am doing my best to not get, you know, over, you know, over-involved or over-excited about this one. But um, I can't wait for him to be a regular member of this team and hopefully really help um, up the technical ability in this team. Does it... You know, I, I don't know about you, but as I was watching around the 60-minute mark, I was kind of hoping he'd be subbed off with an eye towards him maybe being able to play at the weekend. Doesn't look like that happens. Are you slightly disappointed that we're probably not going to get to see him as soon as this weekend and have to wait till after the international break? 
Uh, was there something that was said that he's probably not going to play this weekend? We played 90. I, do you, I mean, I don't do, know. I mean, it's, you know, Sunday, Thursday, it's not that big of a thing. It's not like he had feel, a ton of minutes I feel before. like I'm taking crazy pills. He's not going to come back from injury <laughs> and play Sunday, Thursday after 90 minutes. But I will take that as your sign that, yes, you are still holding out hope that he starts against Bournemouth. Yes, I, I, I was fully expecting, hopefully, that he would be the, the main guy there on Sunday. Yeah, I, I don't see it. Um, <laughs> Paul, the... Over on the other side, I, I don't want to get dragged down in, into too much negativity because I, I think this was just a tremendously fun game with a lot of positive storylines. Um, the Maitland-Niles one, maybe not the most positive. I don't think he had a mayor or anything, but here's a guy who made a lot of noise in interviews that he's not a fullback and he's going to get to play his natural position. When I saw the lineup come out, I, I wasn't really clocking what the lineup was initially and thought, oh, good, we're going to get to see him in central midfield where his athleticism can really help us. It's something we've missed, his strength, his power. But of course, he was playing uh, right wing which I should have spotted. And it's a position that he he likes himself in. I'm not sure he totally stepped up to the challenge. Do you think this was maybe a missed opportunity for him? Uh, it was definitely a missed opportunity for him. And I think uh, I think if you go back through it, you'll see moments where he does well. Uh, but overall, he didn't impress himself in the game. Now, uh, obviously, there's extenuating circumstances in that he was on the Bellerin side, and Bellerin is clearly not physically where Tierney is. I mean, Tier- Tierney was on a rampage. But more than that, that's Ceballos' side on the left, too. So then you got those two guys, and you got Nelson, uh, who developed a really good understanding with Tierney and with Ceballos. But Tierney in particular, and those two were finding each other all the time, weaving patterns in that corner. There was, And they were having so much success. I mean, th- the first, I think, wasn't it the first three goals? Uh, Martinelli and Weok uh, <laughs> were the first two goals, and Sabalos was the fourth, <clears throat> the first three goals. So it was all coming from that side. Um, there was really no reason to switch it to the other side apart from perverse curiosity. And so I think he was a little bit left in the cold. And he did. He was superb on the Martinelli assist, actually. It's it's Ceballos kicks that off. Uh, but Maitland-Niles is the guy who puts the ball through. Clever flick, just like Ceballos's was to get it started. Mm. So he does a couple of things, but mostly, yeah, uh, he... he he must go away from this game feeling he didn't really get a chance to show what he could do. And he he clearly shows he's got skills and abilities, but whether he can really map his brain into the kind of group think of, of how the team is playing and go with the ebb and flow. Now, I don't know that he asked to be a, a right winger. I think he has some good skills for that. I always thought he had good ring skills for being a full back. I just think he should have poured himself into it. But what he probably wants to be is a right midfielder, which is a little different. And let's be honest. Like, I don't care how optimistic you are. I don't care how prone to positivity you are. You could be as prone to positivity as I am, which most people would say is excessive. Um, But in that case, you're not going to have seven academy players come through and be superstars. Right? Like, Alex Awobi is a successful academy player. And at best, he reached, like, useful squad player and, you know, had stretches of starting. So, between Nelson and Willock and Maitland-Niles and um, uh, uh, Saka, they're not all going to be stars. They're just not, right? Like, maybe Saka and and Willock make it and Nelson becomes a squad player and Maitland-Niles doesn't make it at Arsenal. Like... You have to prime yourself for that being the outcome because ultimately 
the odds that all of them wind up making it, like really making it, are very, very limited. And we've, we've had that discussion before. And Tim, I, look, I think Torreira and Ceballos are an example of players that really just needed a good, solid performance that they dominated a game. They got it. Maitland-Niles didn't. Two players that I think are in interesting situations are Willick and Nelson. Mm. Willick, obviously, extremely impressive in this game. He has had what you'd consider a more traditional academy player's experience stepping up to the first team this season. He's had some performances where he did not look super comfortable. I mean, when he played 10 at Newcastle, he didn't totally look like he knew where to be. Um, He clearly knew what he was doing in this game. I think Nelson a little bit too. Nelson stepped up and played some first team minutes. I think the Watford game, for example, nightmare, didn't go well. Uh, Other performances like this one that did go well. So for you with Willick and Nelson... The way they performed, I mean, maybe pairing them together isn't fair because I think Willick was a little more of a standout in this game than Nelson. But do you want to just sort of walk me through where you think they stand right now in the performance they put forward in this game? Yeah, I, I thought they were both really impressive um, for different reasons. I've I, I've had my doubts about Nelson before, but I've I've actually liked him a little bit more this season than um than a lot of people have. I thought he was decent actually when he came on against Watford in that. I think he did what he was told to do, which was to try and carry the ball on counter-attacks um, and, and Willock too. And, and actually, the, possibly the role I see them both settling into this season is that kind of, I think Emery's going to like using them as substitutes. Almost a bit like um, he, st- he kind of did with Awobi and Mkhitaryan for a while. He either liked playing them for 45 minutes and taking them off or bringing them on for the second half. I, I can see him doing something similar with Willock and Nelson. I, th- I think I can see them kind of, you know, play, starting plenty of games just because of the, the makeup of the squad. But I think because they're both decent ball carriers, he might see them as good substitutes. And, you know, we saw the impact that Willock had along with Torreira as, as a substitute against Aston Villa um, recently. Just having that kind of hard running, uh, kind of hard running off the ball and on the ball type, uh, pretty good to bring in for the last 20 minutes or so. I think there was a time where Ramsey was like that, where Ramsey's energy levels were such that he was... He was a much more valuable player in the final 20 minutes when everyone was tired. Um, but, you know, they'll, they'll both play plenty. Um, I, I was really impressed with Nelson in this game, actually. And, and I think the interesting thing for Nelson is that he strikes me as a, a bit of an Emery player. Um, maybe I, I felt this a little bit about Mikatarian last season where I thought, well, maybe he is in and of himself not absolutely amazing or world class, but um, he kind of does the role that um that the Unai Emery envisages for that wide player in that he's quite happy to step inside as Emery likes and kind of create that box that he likes in midfield um he's quite you know he's quite happy combining with a fullback he's happy to go outside um inside he's happy to take a fullback on and get across in he's happy to come inside and have a shot and he had a few early in this game as well where he kind of just stepped inside um, and got that shot off to the far corner, which was something, you know, Awobi used to pick up that position quite a lot, but he just he just didn't have the shot on him. Whereas I think Nelson does, and I do think we'll see that, you know, two or three times this season. I fancy he'll score from outside the box. 
Um, so I, I, th- I think this could be an interesting season for Nelson. I, I've got a feeling that the manager will take a shine to both of these players because they can do like a rough approximation of what he wants. And, you know, they're, they're both like quite hardworking as well. I think they can do that kind of hard pressing. They can do the ball carrying, particularly if Emery does want us to be more effective in transition and, and on counters and, and therefore bringing them on, a, you know, perhaps in the last half an hour of a game really has some value. Um, so I, and I think that would represent success for both of them this season. Mm. And then next season, you know, they might look at things like when Ceballos is probably gone, Willock might say, right, that's one more midfielder removed. Um, if things go, if, if Emery keeps using Torreira this way, I think he'll go um, in the summer. I, you know, I already think that, Shaka in a way his, his you know his his um his time at Arsenal might like his usefulness might be expiring even in Emery's eyes so I I think there's there's plenty up for grabs um for both of them um but also the interesting thing for Nelson you know I said earlier like isn't it wonderful we've got two 18 year olds really pushing hard for a spot on Sunday um and and that means Nelson's got to raise his game because he'd have come into this season um and probably seen himself not miles ahead, but a bit ahead of Saka and uh, and Martinelli, who are a bit more green, um, have far less experience. But, um, you know, Nelson's now looking at this and thinking, oh, Christ, like these two 18-year-olds are, are actually pushing me as well. And, um, you know, that, that provides an interesting challenge for him. But, yeah, yeah I, I think <laughs> they'll probably settle into the kind of the super sub role and then next season see where they are. Yeah, I mean, I said this in a conversation on Discord, like, I like Nelson, and I think he's been fine. Um, and fine mm. is not bad. For an academy player to look fine in the first team is literally fine. I think Saka and Martinelli have flashed the kind of precocious talent that stands out, that stands out yeah. in the way any of these sort of superstar younger players around Europe stand out and make you sit up and take notice. Uh, go ahead. And actually, when, you, when you've got wide players as well, it, it usually pays to have... One who's got that good, you know, again, a bit like Mkhitaryan, you know, who's just got that good structural sense of where to be, where to stand, who can follow instruction. And then the other guy, the guy on the other flank can be the slightly mm. more mercurial one who can throw the step overs and perhaps score a couple of goals. But, you know, you want that one kind of a bit like your fullbacks, you know, sometimes you, you, you want your Bakary Sanya on one side who just stand where he needs to fucking stand yeah. and do and do what he's told. And then, you know, the other one can be the kind of flying up and down with reckless abandon type. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I, I think, you know, I, I, this is going to be a painful reference, but I remember when Nabry first came into the team, immediately you're like, whoa, what's that? That looks good. And then injury mm-hmm. hit and the loans went bad and we all know where it landed. But there's something about... Uh, a young player who's got end product that really jumps out at you. And I think a really good comp is Sterling. When young players have end product, they almost always turn out to be superstars. The thing that young players tend not to have is end product. And you always talked about this with Iwobi, Tim, is, you know, mm. we, we need to see because the end product comes later and it didn't really happen for him. Mm. When young players have end product, that is a tremendous sign that they are going to be really yep. good. Um, and and Scott, I think you make a good point in the chat here that no one else can read, so I'll reference it. It's a question of ceiling, right? Like, Nelson could be a very good, solid player who provides something the team needs. The question is, 
is his ceiling maybe not as high as Saka or Martinelli, for example, who look like, based on the early returns, could deliver something that that is much more akin to a superstar. Yeah, and I think the other thing, too, that you can kind of see is that I think Nelson might be a more well-rounded kind of player. He may not have the same peak at one particular skill. Um, He doesn't get as many shots. He doesn't seem to quite have an eye for the key pass like Martinelli. Um, He doesn't have the, you know, the world-class athleticism and that, you know, explosive first step to be able to get by a player like Saka has. So I think there's like those kinds of things. So it's like if you really kind of imagine you know, maximizing those skills for those players, you have a very, very good talent. But if you kind of, you know, kind of project Nelson, it's a above average player, which is still an, a, you know, a great thing. I think that was always kind of the thing for Awobi. Awobi didn't necessarily have one particular thing that he was absolutely world-class at, but he had a lot of things that he was very good at and he became a very good player. And I think he is still a good player, but I don't know if you can ever look at him and say he's going to be a star. Um, and that's kind of the thing that is always the most exciting with prospects is you see, oh, this guy has the ability to become a star. Um, and mm. guys that can just become very good um, just don't have that same kind of wish casting that you can do on them. Sometimes I think players confuse us, too, about who they are and what they can be. Um, when we hear about a young wide player coming through who's very got a very big talent, we envision a guy who scores tons of goals and dribbles and beats people and runs really fast, and like not all of them do that. Um, a similar problem I'm having, Scott, is with Willick. And, you know, Joe Willick, to me, I just think, for whatever reason, central midfielder who can carry the ball and run between the lines and, and progress the play with the ball at his feet. And, like... I don't know if that's who he is. He gets really good around the box. He has a fi- an instinct for a finish, I think. I think he can score goals. I think he might be more Ramsey than Genduzi. Um, you know, I in in that he just seems to get better and better and better the closer he gets to goal. I'm not sure he's necessarily figured out positionally what to do off the ball just yet, and I'm not sure he has the athleticism and the defensive intensity to be a central midfielder. So are, are you at all confused by Willock? I mean, he's pl- he played really well in this game. He's had moments where he's played brilliantly this season. You know, I, Tim, I think it was you, Tim, that referenced Diaby. And yeah. I'm not sure if that was about Willock. Was that about Willock when we had that conversation? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's brilliant. There's clearly something special in there, but figuring out how to deploy it as a trick. Do you, do you have a, a sense of how you see that working best for him, Scott? I think the other thing, too, that why we've kind of seen some of these disjointed performances from him is that uh, how he's being asked to play has changed quite a bit. And I think this one where he was given more of the off-ball freedom to look for space to to pop up and, you know, do that Ramsey kind of thing, be the guy that, um, you know, makes those runs from deep to get on the end of things. I think that really does maximize his skills. Um, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's not like horrible on the ball, but I don't think that's going to be, you know, his strength. And, you know, we had Ceballos there on the other side. Um, you know, he wasn't asked to be the defensive guy. We had Torreira behind him. So it really let him lean into the things that he is really good at, um, you know, while still, you know, being a, you know, a solid midfielder, you know, being able to do some of the things, but that wasn't his main task to be able to do. Um, and I think that's some of the things that I think really just looking at this midfield performance overall, everybody was, you know, kind of in a role that they were comfortable in. Um, mm. Danny Ceballos wasn't asked to be the, you know, the 10. He got to be more of a, you know, a little bit deeper on that left-hand side that he's so comfortable in. Um, he looked better. Torreira playing a little bit deeper, um, you know, being the guy that, you know, cleans up things, you know, kind of starts things, you know, keep it keep it simple. Um, you know, he still had the ability to go forward some if he needed to, but I think he was given the, something that he was a little bit more comfortable with. So I think overall, just that midfield just felt 
better because the roles matched the players better. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Look, if you look at some of the younger players who have struggled at their time at Arsenal, whether you want to talk about Knoxley Chamberlain or even an Ainsley Maitland-Niles, they're players who never got to, for any extended period, just go play where they're most comfortable. Arsene Wenger famously said, I see Ox as a player who will eventually play through the middle. Guess how often he played through the middle for Arsenal? <laughs> never. Uh, Maitland-Niles, you know, m- maybe a central midfielder. He played there once against Southampton in the FA Cup um, and looked great. Whereas you look at Saka and Martinelli, who are shining right now, they've been told, hey, go play left wing, go play center forward, go have fun in positions that are natural to you. Whereas you look at Nelson, who played right wing back at a certain period, I think in, in Arson's last season, was it? Um, and and Maitland-Niles playing right back. And so, yeah, the players that get to play in positions that are more clearly defined for them when they're young probably have a better chance to develop. There's something to that. I mean, what about you, Paul? I think... I think Willick is showing that there is an elite talent there, if not necessarily showing exactly how to use it. Yeah, though I think it, it's I think we're harsh when we we kind of question the start of the season. I nobody's I know nobody's beaten up on him, but the Newcastle game is an outlier, right? We we're all aware that what they did the the one area he was standing was the one area they had like nine men on the pitch. It was specifically their objective. To block the middle of the pitch, they had. Did they have three at the back? Uh, they had uh, a packed midfield, and that was basically it. They they decided to stop us coming through the middle, and we wondered why Willock, in his first game ever for Arsenal as a ten, didn't have a great performance when we expected so much. I mean, I don't know who was going to have a good performance in that one. And then you look at the United game, and we bring him on as a left winger, <laughs> um, as a sub, and. Uh, I actually think if you if you throw away a couple of it, and, and I thought he was okay, but he didn't have much of a role there. Um, I think he's been great. I think Mike. I do have a concern with him, but it's the concern you would have with an 18 year old who's played various positions in and around midfield, which is defensively he can he can lose track of where we're at and tr- lose track of game management. And my biggest concern of with him was actually the Anfield game. Um, when you look at the the goal they got in the second half, the of the uh, uh, it's TAA passes it into Firmino, who flicks it onto um, uh, Salah, who gets fouled for the penalty, and it's Henderson who makes the diagonal run out to the corner, and Willock kind of goes with him and kind of does nothing, but. He runs right past that passing lane he's supposed to block with the TAA, which he does all in, through the first half. And I think that's where my concerns are with Willock Moore. Mm-hmm. As an 18-year-old, he's not secure enough when we're out of pose- possession. I think he does everything else you'd want him to do great. I actually think he's got a, a pretty good pass on him. I think he's very – he's maybe Pogba light. I, I think that the Abbey comparison is good, but I wouldn't be telling Tim that was brilliant. I'd say it was good. I think uh, Pogba's also <laughs> <Okay>, a <my> good. <laughs> I, I just thought that was excessive. I think it's a good comparison. I okay. think um, Pogba's that's you told Tim. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have Pogba's top end vision, but but he's had times where he's he's uh, laid off some excellent passes. And the other thing he has is the same way Ozil has it. He has these swivel hips there was a game right at the early in the season where he gets to the byline and his hips 
swivel 180 degrees and he passes straight backwards setting up i don't know i don't know what turned out i think it turned into a goal but it was a brilliant cutback and he can do that he can swivel and lay a ball back at speed like nobody i've seen in our team apart from maybe ozil he's got a lot of skills that i would want to see him diabbying up and down that pitch from uh, you know kind of the second pivot role not not our not our deepest lying playmaker but all day, every day, I'd, I'd develop him as that, that second pivot or that central midfielder. And yes, he can do the Ramsey. He's not afraid of the six-yard box. I just think he's got a superb uh, career ahead of him yeah. as a great central midfielder. You know, Gerard, Lampard, all of these guys ran up and down, straight up and down the pitch. And I think he can do that. Yeah, I and you know, I think you're right to focus on his hips because the one thing we do know is that they don't lie. Um, so you can you can get a really honest assessment of a player by watching because hips don't lie. Um, you know, look with respect to how you're phrasing. You know, it's interesting because like uh, we have a lot of interesting um, people in the Discord uh, for Patreon who have a lot of interesting um, uh, contributions to make and and help me see things in a maybe slightly different way. And I know that uh, Jane Cavendish who's in the, the discord. We, we've talked about Willick a bit and I think she's skeptical of his, his top level athleticism and defensive intensity. And I, I, I definitely think that's something that can be worked on. Um, I, I do see him being one of these players that has a more natural instinct closer to goal than maybe he does deeper in midfield. I'll tell you what we're going to do. It, a, it, a lack of athleticism though. I, I'm not sure I get that me, bit. Maybe off the ball intensity and I mean athleticism okay. in the the sort of pure the sprints. I don't know. You know, he's good at carrying the ball. He's got power and strength in the way he carries the ball. I don't know if he has that Bouncer. that sprinting speed. I don't, you know, I have to admit, I I struggle with that sort of thing because I think, um, you know, what what is real athleticism? Is it jumping? Is it physical power? Is it top end speed? You know, Danny Welbeck was a supreme athlete. Right or may still be to to be fair to him, um, you know he could run, he could jump, he could sprint, he could burst, he was strong. I guess I, I guess everybody has a different feeling. Like Ganduzi is I an just athlete. Think Willock's kind of an optical illusion. Yeah, he's always, he, he's with the ball. I'm thinking, oh, the guy's going to catch him, but he's actually pulling away. Yeah, well, and like you know, Ganduzi's an athlete. Is it because he sprints? No, but he he just has that aerobic ability to run for ninety minutes and keep his level high. I mean, there, there's all different ways. So, um. You know what I'm going to do? Let's make a deal. It's 47 minutes into the podcast. There's no need to take a, an advertising break at this point. We're having a great conversation. I want to break it up. So what I'll do, I'll take a beat. Um, if five people sign up for our Patreon right now, we won't take an advertising break. Does that sound fair? Just five. Yeah. It's just five. All right, five. So, well, there's two. All right, there's five. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. I want to thank Bob, Jim, Jane, Sarah, and Betty. For that, thank you for that. Um, okay, Tim, <laughs> moving on. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so you know, the one of the things that I think was interesting about this game is it was a chance for some players to sort of get right, for lack of a, a better way to put it. I'm not sure Pepe necessarily did that, and I think the way Martinelli and Saka are playing, and the way some of the younger players are pushing, you know, I think suggesting that that Pepe has been bad is wrong. He has not been bad. And the data is interesting. If you just look at the data in terms of like what he's doing from a, you know, like a, um, 
a, a dribbling standpoint and a, prog- a ball progression standpoint and final third entry and he's taking shots. The end product isn't really coming. But I'm curious to get your sense on how, you know, how he looked in this game. If you think there is an argument for him maybe not necessarily being guaranteed a starting place and, and where we go from here with Pepe because we have a lot invested in him. I still believe in him. We, we need it to make to work. So we have, we're, you know, we were incentivized to make it work, but how are you feeling about the way he looked in this game? And in general, what we should be thinking about doing with him going forward. I, I thought it was really good when he oh, came on, well, uh, to be honest, I, I can't. Done done. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, so first of all, um, there's something about game state here. Arsenal scored three times in 22 minutes. That makes it a different game to come into. That means the contest was dead for like, you know, what, 40 minutes by the time we'd come on. That makes the game state completely different. Yeah, if fair. Arsenal are like really going for goals here, then I think things look different. I did think when he came on, I thought to myself, yeah, I can see why he's coming on. Emery wants him to join the party here. And he's probably thinking, no, there's probably goal in this for Pepe. But I think the game had just kind of petered out at that point. But I I can't think of a thing he did wrong. You know, I I can't think of a time like where he miscontrolled the ball or he made the wrong pass or he lost it. Like, I, I just can't think of any of that. And so he was, he was, I thought he looked a bit better in this game than perhaps, well, it, certainly than he did against United, than, than he had recently, um, you know, which is probably a lot to do with the fact that I think all arrows point to the midfield here. That's why the defence is looking better and that's why the attack looks better because playing a slightly more balanced midfield and it, it, make, it makes a lot of difference. Um, and I thought, you know, there were some good early signs of him combining with Bellerin, which I think, you know, could make a lot of difference uh, for him. Yeah, that, in, in that I agree with. That's a really good point. I mean, with, with guys like, you know, like Chambers is, is all well and good, but he's he's not naturally a fullback and there's no real overlap mm. and combination there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think I sense that without Lacazette, he's been playing a bit closer to Aubameyang. So he's been, you know, taking some more central positions and not, you know, I, I get the sense that what he wants to do is collect the ball wide and then move into the half space with it. Whereas he's kind of starting in the half space and getting crowded out. Um, you know, and that, that didn't happen as much this time. And again, some of that is just because Liège were done. Um, I, I, I thought he was absolutely fine. I, I think the thing is, I think he needs to score a goal soon. Not, And I I don't think so much for himself, maybe, well, a, a bit for himself. I think for us, um, I think we're getting a bit antsy as a fan base about it. And, you know, the the, the kind of the mumbling starting. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure he wants a goal and he needs a goal. I think we need him to score a goal more than he needs it, if you know what I mean, because it's starting to become a talking point. And I, I, like you say, he hasn't been bad. I can't think of many misplaced passes, like, you know, easy misplaced passes. I can't think uh, maybe there are a few at Old Trafford. I can't think of too many times where he's just thumping the ball out of play or anything. He's been He's just been a bit average, really. Um, and yes, it, it perhaps creates an issue for him that like Saka and Martinelli have been really good, um, but albeit they've been playing in different teams with different structures um, who've released the handbrake a bit more. I, I think I think the worst thing we could do now is drop him out, the absolute worst thing, because mm. he's, he's not even close to a liability. Um, I think you play him on Sunday, um, but put players around him that can help get the best out of him. 
um, if that means playing Ozil or if you still don't want to play Ozil because he's playing silly buggers in training, play Sabios and, you know, give him a framework around him that can help him. Um, that I, I think that is more the way forward. And, and also, I, I don't think we want to expose some of these young players too much yet because, look, we as Arsenal fans, we've been here before, right? We've been here before and we've seen, like I said earlier, Vela score hat-tricks, Jay Simpson score hat-tricks, Bentner, Danielson, Song, rip championship and lower level Premier League teams apart in the League Cup and we will go, play them in the first team, play them in the first team and guess what? We played them all in the first team. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it it didn't necessarily go the way we would have liked. Um and I suspect that Tim may have just dropped off there, unless I dropped off. So we're about to find that out. Scott, you got to run soon, don't you? I do. Uh, do you have time to quickly touch on one more topic? I do. So, uh, well, just real quick. I mean, you look at the data. Does the data suggest that maybe we are all overstating Pepe's struggles? I mean, do, do the numbers like him better than maybe our eyes? Um, it, it seems like it's it's very much it's fine. Um, and I think that when you kind of look at it in context. Um, you know, he doesn't have the the partner on the right-hand side to really maximize him. He doesn't have a, another guy um, in the team that's really kind of taken on the, the creative burdens. I think that's kind of fallen on him. One of the things that, you know, I think Tim was talking about, he hasn't really misplayed any easy stuff. Um, it really looks like he's trying to do too many hard things, actually, almost. Like, you know, you see him, like, and he gets the ball in the final third, and he's trying to do something spectacular. Um, it feels like he's trying to impress a little bit in that regard, trying to play, you know, the absolute perfect ball when maybe that's not the, you know, the best case to do. Um, so, I mean, it could be, you know, he's, he's got the the price tag, and, you know, that's a, a mental thing, and he's got to, to deal with that. But, I mean, you look at it, he's, he's creating chances for teammates. He's getting shots for himself. He's dribbling. I mean, he's doing all the things that you kind of expected him to do. Um, the one thing that just hasn't happened is, is goals yet. So I, I, I'm not ready to, to give up on him. I don't think he's been horrible. Um, I think that, you know, he's still providing value to the team, um, you know, creating a, a threat out there. The other thing, too, is that, you know, Arsenal have had a very heavy left-handed bias um, in this team. And I don't know if that's going to change necessarily with Tierney hopefully coming in soon. Um, but I think, you know, that kind of a, a thing too, that, you know, he's not necessarily involved in the buildup. He's not, he's kind of isolated there on the right-hand side. So maybe when Bellerin is back and, you know, firing, um, we'll have, be able to kind of balance out the, the way that we attack down the side. So I think that, you know, looking at things, it's been fine. There's no major kind of like red flag saying that, you know, this is a, you know, a transfer that's ready to, to go bad or anything like that. So I, I think it's just, just time. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that I find that very encouraging and I like that perspective from both of you. I think if I had to pick on him, if I had to pick a thing that I think he, he's, you know, the expression pressing too much, he's maybe just pressing a little too much. I don't mean pressing defensively. I mean, pressing in the sense of um, just trying yeah, you know, a little to, trying to make things happen too much. And, uh, yeah, it feels like he's trying to squeeze balls through really tight windows that, you know, aren't necessarily there to be open to yeah, play through. Yeah. And it's like it's like one of those things like if it comes off, it's like a highlight that, you know, gets you know retweeted 100 times. But if it doesn't, it's just, a, oh, he did it again. And then, you know, we, we lost the ball. Yep, exactly. And and I the one thing I would wish he would do a little more is maybe just release the ball a little quicker. He trusts himself to beat a man and he often can. I think he's holding the ball a little too long and some of the passing lanes are going. And maybe if he gave it sooner, he could then run into space and receive it back and trust his teammate to give it back to him. So, Scott, we'll let you go. Scott's on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Thanks, Scott.
Thank you. Cheers. Okay, uh, Paul, let's get into the meat of the conversation regarding the style of play. I think this is maybe the most interesting debate to have coming out of this game. This has been very enjoyable, and the Forest game was very enjoyable. 26 shots, tons of possession, 550 passes. Look, Manchester United, Liverpool, Spurs, Chelsea, they're not going to let us do that. Fine, those are different games, and I put those to one side. But the Watfords, you know, the Villas, those teams, I, I mean, am I convinced that they're worse than Liège? I'm not convinced I mean, again, Standard Liège had as many passes and shots in this game as we did against United, so it's not like they weren't in the game. Can you look at this approach and translate it to our Premier League approach? Can you put Aubameyang in and, you know, Ganduzi if you need to and maybe leave Shaka? I mean, what would you like to see Emery take from this kind of performance and this kind of approach? Because, look, if we're going to be critical of Emery, let's give him credit. He's the guy who put these players out there. He's the guy who told them how to go play, at least presumably. Um, and it worked. And it worked really well, and it emphasized our strengths. And this team just looked at home pressing and pushing up and committing resources to the final third and playing around the edge of the opposition box. And we don't do it much in the Premier League. So can we, should we, can we take, can, can we have lessons from this game that get translated into our Premier League performances? Sure. I mean, there's nothing about the way we played here that in an Arsene Wenger era, you wouldn't say, oh yeah, that that totally fits what we're doing in our Europa League and in our league performances. And maybe uh, at the weekend, you then field a, for a very similar approach with somewhat different players. And then maybe you say to yourself, well, maybe he's wedded to players that just that when he looks at playing this way, he says, well, well, it's just not a good fit. And the most obvious candidate is Chaka. So we don't need to go through that whole debate again. But he probably does, de- if you're wedded to Chaka for whatever his reasons are, he loves the deep ball progression and the leadership or whatever, maybe that's a player that makes him think uh, uh what happened at Liège isn't going to happen against a Bournemouth or a Watford or whatever. So I think that's one aspect of it. But it makes you wonder then, even more so, why is he wedded to Chaka? He's Chaka's not the only guy who can play in that position. Um, and he comes with a considerable... If we've talked about ceilings on players, he comes with this considerable floor uh, of a ceiling in terms of what he can do in terms of mobility. But... For whatever reasons, and I think we all think Chak is a really good player or 50% of of what's required of a football uh, footballer. And on the other hand, he's highly immobile uh, and has his brain fart moments and has his defensive awareness weaknesses. But he's wedded to the guy. So you got the Chakaka factor. And I do think although uh, Liège uh, are a team that could probably do okay in the bottom area of the Premier League, you st- that still was not a game that had the intensity of Watford in the second half away from home, uh, where we... It, it wasn't just that we were conservative. They they overpowered us, and we looked shagged. Again, there was no great reason for why we looked shagged out, but they, you know, we had... We kind of displayed we had no answer for it, weirdly. I don't disagree, but I, I do sometimes wonder if... 
being more conservative invites the kind of pressure sure. over a sustained period that exposes our particular frailties. Like Liege did attack, but they couldn't sustain attacks and sustain possession in our defensive third because we yeah. did not allow that. We, when we got the ball, we pushed it into their attacking their defensive third and held it there for long stretches of time. And I think that that does two things. I think it blunts their ability to commit resources the other way. And it sort of kills their will a little bit. And, and I do think when you sit back, let's face it, players like playing in the attacking third. They just do. It's more fun. It's you know, yeah. it's easier. And so again, I'm, I'm, it's not that I'm disagreeing with you about the intensity, but I do, I do think it is fair to question whether the when you signal to the opposition the way you intend to play, does that have repercussions for how they're going to play against you? You know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's very fair. And I think uh, you know, Liège were good. They, they weren't much good in the second half when when uh, the battle was lost, but they could have easily have got the first two goals if they got their finishing right or, or those crosses uh, had been put away. I mean, they had three, four really good, dangerous situations of the ball fizzing through our or past our six-yard box or uh, off somebody's head or whatever, and, and, and they didn't do what Martinelli did. And so... It could have been a very different game. They were a good team. Uh, certainly, it's a good good comparison for, say, Bournemouth on Sunday at the Emirates. It's not necessarily going to be any tougher than that. It might be, but it might not be. Um, but I think you're right. I think we'll go back to uh, Emery's more measured approach. I don't really get it at this point. I do get he was waiting for his fullbacks. Well, waiting is the wrong word. I do see that the fullbacks can transform That's very our fair. capabilities yep. as very a team. Mm -hmm. But I don't know why you'd institute a way of playing that that uh, took you, in, was 180 degrees from what would suit those guys. I know we're, we are counter-attacking, but it's so contained, so, uh, so passive in our approach uh, and defensively, where it's all... It, it, it just seems like bad management that the best excuse I can give him is waiting for Gado, waiting for the fullbacks to show up before he actually plays more progressive football because it's just not pretty to watch. And the the one thing I would have, I, I guess people sometimes frustrated with me that I'm somewhat patient with Emery waiting for things to show up. The one thing that would have turned me on Emery uh, by day two of this season was if he'd shafted the kids in terms of their development. If I just felt it was all words and he didn't follow through on that. So the one thing that gives me great heart after a Europa League game is, and I'm not saying he's the world's greatest development coach and he's all about the kids like Wenger was, but it, at least he he's done nothing that makes me think he isn't giving these guys their shot. So I have a lot of tolerance for that. But yeah, I do not get his... First team Premier League approach this season, and uh, maybe it'll all make sense after we get the fullbacks up and running. I don't get can it. I, can I just uh, add on the fullbacks? I, I would um, love it if you would, please. Yes, because <laughs> uh, I'm I'm thinking of writing a piece on this this weekend. Actually, like how much will Bellerin and Tierney actually change? Because I kind of I know <clears throat> Andrew made a, a point a few times on the Askcast about this kind of. We always seem to be waiting for something and actually after a while you've just got to say it's probably not going to change anything because mm. everything else has already changed but the, 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 I, i'm cautious i'm cautiously 
do think that Bellerin and Tierney coming back to full fitness will change a few things. And I'll caveat this by saying Bellerin will not be up to full speed until New Year earliest. Um, he might start he playing a step more regularly. Slow. I mean, I, I think yeah. you'd expect it at this point, but but he's not yeah. he's not up to speed yet. That's for sure. And, and like give it another month before he's playing like you know every game and even then it will take another couple of months before he's 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 right back where where he needs to be but the the thing that just gives me pause for thought a the, the amount of stock that emery puts in fullbacks it's it's huge but b i look at some of the problems in our team at the moment and i think the the center halves why are the centre-halves having such a hard time? They're being exposed. Why are they being exposed? Because Emery is, doesn't trust Maitland-Niles and Kolasinac, so he's splitting his central midfielders either side of Xhaka and playing them so wide and getting them into such wide places. you know, And that's creating a problem for our midfield as well. So you think if he stops doing that, then you know that kind of goes some way to allaying some of the problems our centre-backs and our centre-midfielders are having. What's another kind of issue we've got at the moment? Pepe. How much does Bellerin, you know, potentially solve that issue for him? And so we've got some of these, like, micro-issues in the team, and it could be me wish-casting. I'm, I'm fully prepared to believe that that could be the case, but I do see them as a bit of a network. I do see it as a little bit of a kind of, you know, it's like a rolling stone <laughs> Um, and that perhaps the two fullbacks coming back just stops just stops that kind of that domino effect. Mm, yeah, I, well, I, I don't. So here's the thing, right? This was a fun game and you should be able to hold your hand up and say, I enjoyed this. This was a lot of fun. And if you have enough conviction in your beliefs, one game shouldn't change them. But if you have such conviction in your beliefs that a game can't influence them, then you're just being obstinate right? You're being dogmatic. So like, I look at this game and I say, I see us do things that I'd like to see us continue to try to do. And if it is, the, you know, look, can we all agree on this? If it, if it is the case that standard were just really, really, really terrible. And we try this against Bournemouth, we might get ripped apart. We might, but we could still try it. We could play a four, two, three, one and press and push up and try to have, you know, some dom some territorial dominance. Like we could try it and it could fail. And then we could look and we could it, say, well, go ahead. Tim. It's earned the right to fail. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it's earned yeah. the right to be tried. That, that, that's, that is exactly it, Tim. Like, I loved this game and I loved the Forest game. And I'm not going to pretend that Forest is at the level of a Premier League team. Although, you know, they're not. How far can they possibly be? And I'm not going to pretend that Standard are at the level of a Premier League team, although they could be close. But I will certainly acknowledge that the way we played in those games has merit and, and, and should be something that we could at least consider in being able to influence and inform the way we play in Premier League games. And I would love to see that. Tim, I'll stay with you just for a, a last question as we wrap up here with, with you and Paul. Um, when you look at the weekend and you look at the players that are playing well in the Cup games and, and the way the league has gone, you referenced it earlier, but I, I just want to roll back to it for a second. The Granite Shaka thing feels like the Jenga piece that has the whole thing, that keeps the whole thing from toppling over. Like, Ceballos doesn't, feel like he fits in the team with with Shaka and Torreira doesn't get to play his natural role with Shaka and the mobility of the midfield to be able to push up and run back does he seems limited by Shaka and like pinning it all mm. on him is maybe exonerating Emery too much or maybe putting too much responsibility on him but how to what extent do you feel that his inclusion cuz let's let's face it right the best games we've had this season Forest uh uh Standard 
the comeback against Villa, Frankfurt, right? Frankfurt, like Burnley, where we've looked coherent in midfield and where our attacking flow has been more enjoyable. He hasn't been in. Now that's correlation. It doesn't necessarily mean causation, but it's certainly a relevant data point. So, for you, is that is that the the pin that has to be pulled? The the you know the domino that has to fall before maybe this starts to go in the right direction. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll just point out he did play against, against Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Yes, um, yes, and that's why. But, yeah, I didn't you? Know. I I think I reluctantly agree because I, I generally I really hate it. You know the kind of take this player out and all our problems are solved type thing. But um, and that's not to say it solves all it our solves problems. It solves a lot of problems honestly, for but, other players in 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 the sense yes. that they may get to play the positions where they are more at home. Yes, exactly, exactly. That, that's exactly it, and and that's why I don't want it to be like pejorative towards Shaka and just say, "Oh, he's an idiot, he's a joker, get rid of him," and and we don't have any idiots and jokers or flawed players in the team. It's it's you're right, it's a unit thing, and that's I I as much as his flaws frustrate the hell out of me sometimes, I you know I do feel sorry for Shaka in that respect, but yes, I I do kind of think that that's how it is at the moment, and again to use that phrase again that it's that solution has earned the right to fail if we we know what's going to happen if we keep playing granite jacker there we know because he's been there for you know nearly three years so we we know that and we know what our ceiling is with him playing that role yes exactly and it could be that yeah we play the next three premier league games or whatever without him and it might all go it might all go to shit as well I, i don't see it like being quote unquote worse, you know, but yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly prepared to believe that. Yes, maybe it, 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 it just might not work for different reasons, but it's, it's, you know, I think we've got to try it at this point. I really do. And, and, you know, Emery hasn't been adverse to trying pretty much everything else at this stage. Can I make They're a just, point though? You know what? Yeah, Tim, yeah. Like, like not to cut across you, but it's funny, right? People are really prepared to just throw out how we play against teams like Standard and Forest, you know, and say it's level of competition stuff. It is kind of weird to me that arguably our best 30 minutes of Premier League football have come with nine men, or pardon me, not nine men, but 10 men, Mm. in a game, and the only difference, the only thing that was really different about that versus all of our other Premier League football is we just went hell for leather. And so if you're saying, like, just playing more attacking football can't work, what I would say is we did that against Villa with 10 men, and it worked. Like, am I crazy to point to that and say, like, how, how is that not a relevant data point? I realize it's a, a weird game state, but we had 10 men on the pitch, we committed them all to attack, and it totally worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I so I... I, th- I do think that's valid. I, th- I think a couple of caveats. Yes, the game state. Also, Villa are particularly bad in that situation. Villa, it, it's weird actually. Arsenal have won the most points, I think, in the Premier League from um, from losing positions. Maybe that tells but, you that when we have a losing position and we have yeah. to go out of the attack, we're good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and but Villa have lost the most points. Um, mm-hmm. from from those positions, it, it's a real problem um, for them. And actually. I was delighted, but I was really surprised when they went two one up against us that they they completely stopped. They completely stopped um, until it went to two two again, and then they had like the odd kind of breakaway, and uh, and they really shouldn't have done that. Like they they could have got a third. I'm, I'm you know what I think is interesting. Sure. The more I watch football, the more I'm convinced that not many teams are any good at defending. Period. Like w- w- that when they have to defend, like 
teams just don't defend particularly well. And the teams that do mm. it seem to do it by keeping the ball. And like I, you know, if you said to me, well, Villa have lost the most points from uh, leading positions, I'd say, well, that just tells me that they're really bad when they try to defend deep. And if you say that yep. Arsenal have uh, regained the most points from a losing position, what I'd say is they must be a hell of a team to try to stop when they're coming at you with an all-out attack. And like, you put those two things together and you say, well, let's just go have a go at Villa. And when we did, it worked. So, look, I, I, I realize that I am oversimplifying things and I, I apologize for doing that. But I certainly think that it's not just that we did it against Standard and Forest. We had to do it against Villa and it, and it worked. And even if they are particularly wretched, I just, to your point, like, we know what happens if we don't do it. So... Maybe we should try. Uh, Paul, one thing that we haven't touched on, I think we should, and then, Tim, I'm going to give you the, the finish with, with your favorite topic, so get ready for it. Um, we haven't touched on Aubameyang and Ganduzi, and I, I, I don't think we need to make a, a, a mountain out of this molehill, but I am curious where you stand on the decision to to bring them into this game. Um, pretty, I mean, I think it's fair to call it totally unnecessarily. Yeah, uh, certainly. Like, that's that's my, my knee-jerk on it. It's like... Why are we doing this? Uh, I could see you can come up with a scenario that hey, Emery wanted to get Pepe firing and try Martinelli on the left as a three, blah blah blah. I don't know that there's enough likely value in that. Um, you know, Tim's talked about, and he's probably the better guy for this question. All the stuff we don't know in the backroom team, the medical team, the fitness team, etc. Is it better for players to be rested for the for the long term outcome or to get to play? If he's suited up and he's on the bench and ready to go, is is twelve minutes for Aubameyang better uh, for him and his fitness long term than than not playing? Than well, than if, we, if we didn't have a game, up. presumably he'd have a full training. Right. So yeah, and you can get interested or injured in training. We've managed to do that at Arsenal a number of times, Um, and they might have a forty-five minute game or a sixty-minute game. I I don't think Aubameyang is the player that that uh, Vojadovic or whatever his name is going to go clattering into the back of. I'm not. Wasn't surprised it was a Martinelli or a Sabayas where he was taking his frustrations out on him. But but shit happens in the game. And tackles are more robust, and he's in the center of the box. So I don't. I'd love to get. It's one of those questions that, as a fan, you say that's ridiculous, but only a professional can tell you why, in God's name, they would do that. Maybe it's not the worst thing to do, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Ganduzi, not so much. Um, I guess. I, well, he's not the only midfielder we have, whereas Aubameyang is currently the only goal scorer yeah, we from have. from an age and options team. standpoint, there's a big difference between Ganduzi and, and Aubameyang. Um, yeah, I, I am but he doesn't ever get injured, pretty much. So, yeah, no. Given that we have enough things that we, we seem to get angry and outraged and, and frustrated yeah. about at Arsenal yeah. at the moment, I am inclined to just say, fuck it. It didn't, nothing bad happened and move on. Like, we could have a whole pod just debating how you rotate and periodization, things like that. None of us are experts on it, so let's not pretend. I mean, Tim, unless you have a strong feeling about that, I want to finish with a quick one. Do you have a strong feeling about that? No, I've tweeted about this enough today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go check that out. Um, he does have a strong feeling. He's <laughs> he's expressed it. Oh, and, and was it was it that it was dumb to use him? No. 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 Okay. No. Um, okay, well then, good. Good. We can all stay upbeat. So the last thing is this. 
I am at the point now where I think it is in everybody's best interest from a sanity standpoint to just not discuss Mesut Ozil again this season. To yeah. accept that whether it is 80% Emery's fault or 80% Mesut's fault or 50-50 or 90-10 or whatever it is, that the player and the manager have fallen out, that the player is not in his plans, that he was named captain for reasons that we will never know, that he will probably play somewhat, un unless there is a huge sea change in their relationship or a managerial change, that he probably will not be a regular feature in the team, and that discussing it can only serve to sow disharmony and frustration. Should this be the last time we just bother discussing Mesut Ozil unless he's <laughs> on the pitch and we're talking about his performance? Look... I mean, possibly. So the thing is, actually, I wrote about this earlier this week about how I was kind of confused about what Emery's treatment of him was for. And and not because I think like Ozil shouldn't be left out or anything like that. I just wasn't clear on the mixed messages, like the kind of... So this, for example, I completely get this. Like, like Emery made this clear. He hasn't been in the A-team for the last two games and he was asked about it and he said other players deserve it more. He has to work hard to get back in. So that there's a reason there. Okay, so what, what he's basically saying is he hasn't put it in on the training ground. I, I have complete sympathy for that. I completely defer to Emery's, you know, better knowledge base on that. And if that's the case, that is absolutely what should happen. If players aren't training properly, they shouldn't play no matter who they are. Um, so I have complete sympathy with that. And actually... And, and Tim, if it's a lie, that's something he knows uh, the Ozil camp would put some PR about. So it's obviously, yeah. there's obviously some weight to what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. And um, because what I didn't get was playing him against Forrest as captain and he plays well and then hauling him off, you know, in a very pointed way to kind of humiliate it. Like, I don't get that. I don't get the need to make those like humiliating, like those to slightly defile the player in public. Just leaving him out, yeah, I, I completely get like that's that's a clear decision that has been taken. Like that's easy to follow. That's easy to follow for the player. The message is there for the player. Work harder. You're not working hard enough. You're not in. Fine. That like that is absolutely fine. But for me, what I didn't get was the kind of the half in, half out. Um, you're not playing today, but you're going to play today and be captain. You're going to play today and be captain. I'm going to take you off after 70 minutes, even though you're playing well. Then I'm going to leave you out of the 18. It's that kind of rousing sleeping dog stuff that I, I didn't get. And, the fact and that if, it's so inconsistent, Tim, in terms of the behavior, especially recently. I mean, he had a good preseason. Then, you yeah. know, it looks like he's in the plans. Then he has the incident. Then he's kind of back with Forrest and Watford and does fairly well. And now this stuff's going on. But And in the middle, he was made a captain. Makes me think stuff is going on right now yeah. or in the yeah. last week or two. Things, events have changed. People yep. have said things. Meetings yep. have happened. Incidences have happened. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Ozil gave him a mouthful after the Nottingham Forest game. And that might be behind it. But, but I think, Personally, I feel a bit more comfortable with this now because it, it looks like, you know, because uh, we're never going to be told that stuff, really. It's unlikely we're going to be told that Meza Ozil, you know, had a go at Emery or didn't or whatever. But the thread that we've got to follow now is that if you train well, you will be in the, the, the team or the squad. If you don't train well and you don't put it in, 
you won't be. So even if he's back in the squad on Sunday, personally, I will take that as, well, he trained well. And, you know, he did what he was asked to do and what he was supposed to do. And then so even even if it is a little bit in out, I feel like I can follow it. I can't follow play him and then haul him off, even though he's playing well. Like, I, I can't follow that. But this, I feel like, makes more sense. And yeah. therefore, I, you know, I, I, I feel a bit more at peace with it for whatever that's that's worth. And let's be clear about something fair or unfair. When you take a job at a big club, and I'd like to think we are still one of those. This is something you've got to be good at. If you're the Madrid manager, you've got to handle Gareth Bale or Cristiano Ronaldo. And if you're the United manager, you've got to handle Paul Pogba. And if you're the Chelsea manager, you don't have any good players, so it's not a big deal at all. Um, if you are the... I'm, I'm kidding. You know, if you're Pochettino, you've got the Eriksen situation, the Bertongan situation. If you're... You know, you can go through all of these... If you're City, you've got the, the Sané situation, right? We have the Ozil situation. This is not unique to Arsenal. This happens at big clubs. Th- these are big egos. They have entourages around them. There's crazy shit that goes on. And you've got to be able to handle these situations at a big club. It's not enough to just be good with the tactics board. You've got to be able to man-manage and man-manage nearly impossible situations. The Neymar situation at PSG comes to mind. We could get into Emery's history of doing it. I don't think we need to right now. It's just not worth it. But it is certainly a situation... So, interestingly, with the examples you talked about, they kind of haven't been handled by anybody. No, they haven't. No, they're problems. But, I mean, you know, again, I think... You would say that the uh, best. Can I, I mean, make one other point on the PSG Alex Ferguson thing, handled the Roy Keane situation. You know, uh, you could say that Arsene Wenger handled a few in his time as well. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, it, Ferguson was a despot, so that made it easy for him. Um, but you know, with absolute power. The thing about PSG is uh, there's a narrative that we know he can't handle big names at from what happened to PSG, which is fine. I won't even get into that half of the half of the debate. But the other thing we saw that we ignore is he was a company man at PSG. He did exactly what the owners asked him to do with the personnel. Now, not everybody loved him for it or respected him, but he did exactly what he was asked to do by the owners in terms of who he played and who he didn't, and to some degree how he set up his team. Uh, people think he came back from PSG and now he's 180 degrees reacting to Ozil. No, he hasn't changed at all, would be my guess. He's still, he may not have handled the Ozil situation. They may not have hit it off. He may have been able to get more out of that relationship. But I think overall, he's pretty much in lockstep with what the club have asked him to do with Ozil uh, along the way. So uh, you, people you know think me, it's Paul? just personal animus. I don't think it's that. I I think it's a difficult situation that a lot of managers would have struggled with. We all would have said Ozil was going to be the challenge to integrate for Emery because of his style and because Ozil was the star. And uh, and in particular because Emery is looking for buy-in from players and Mr. Ozil is Mr. Too Cool for school. I love the guy, right? Uh, I know I've been slagging, taking Emery's side a bit recently on this without many facts. But I love the guy, but he was always the guy that Emery was going to run up against when drawing a line as to what's acceptable and what's not from. There's a lot of different ways to handle it. I mean, United can't win without Pogba. They can't. I don't think Spurs can win without Ericsson. I don't think... You know, you go you go through these teams. I mean, City can win without Sané. So he's frozen out. That's it. I, I think, unfortunately, as a manager, 
I, and and this is I'm not saying this is fair, but if you freeze out a player because that's how you're handling a tough situation and the results aren't working out, you will lose your job before the player will. I, I'm not saying it's right, but you got to be careful. You know, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't play Pogba and United's results dip, not that they can dip any lower than they have, Ole's going to lose his job. Pogba's going to be fine, right? So it's a big thing. And, and you know me, I'm not afraid to be wrong. And wrong quite vehemently. I don't love to put myself out there when I don't have information. None of us have enough information on the Ozil situation to make to make uniform blanket statements about what's happening. We just don't. Hey, man. We we yeah. have we have guesswork. We have bias. If you're a little more pro Ozil and a little more anti Emery or vice versa, you have a bias you bring to the debate. You're not at training. You don't know the truth. There are rumors. They may be true. They may be false. At the end of the day, if anyone wants to tell you definitively that they know what's right here, they're wrong. The only definitive thing we know is if Arsenal can't win football games and Mesut Ozil could help us win football games, that's going to cost Emery his job. So he's got to get it right. And I feel for him. I hope he does. Paul's on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Thanks, Paul. Cly- uh, Clive's not here. Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> kidding. Uh, Tim's on Twitter. Stoberto. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, and I'd just like to say that I don't bring any bias to the Emery Ozil situation because I want them both to go. Touche! Spitting fire at <laughs> wow. the hour and a half mark from Tim. 90 minutes Ooh. in, and the hot takes come out. By the way, Tim? Tim? Yeah. This is me virtu- giving you a virtual handshake, fist bump, whatever, whatever the kids do these days. Um, yeah, my name is Alex Bidika Blackman on Twitter, Yankee Gunner Scott. Obviously, you, you know him. We talked about him. Uh, over on Patreon, Scott's match sims are going to be up momentarily. We're going to be doing a couple different Patreon pods that we have lined up for the international break. We'll have a post-match pod after Bournemouth. You, of course, can read the brilliant writing on theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision to sign up and get a month free and 50% off. That's like more than 49%. Think about that when you put it that way crazy uh or sign up for our patreon you know to be fair um they're, they're both wonderful but but you know you do what you do what you want to do uh so look at least enjoy the games when they're good football only gives you so many games and so many of them are going to be good this was great this was a ton of fun and i had a blast watching it and i hope there's more like it and uh you know how i think emory can turn things around real easily more games like this please starting with bournemouth we'll talk to you after arsenal 10 bournemouth no. 